Welcome to the life of Jesus, part two. This is lesson number nine, and we're going to begin in chapter six of this particular book, and we're going to be taking up the subtitle, Escape to Egypt and Jesus at 12. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13, where it says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose... This is verse 14. He took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled that was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. All right. Verse 19. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Now remember again, we said that everyone that was after Jesus' life was dead by now. Obviously, divine judgment fell on all of them. And we remember that Herod himself died a very terrible death. Okay, I almost wonder, in thinking about that, how that would have unfolded. You know, whether following the death of all those children, whether he suddenly took ill and started just going downhill from there. And he just was just getting worse and worse and worse. Because it was fairly quick that he died. And everyone else with him. You see, we miss that little thing that says, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. So it wasn't just Herod that everybody that was involved started dropping like flies. Okay, so I think that was, you know, that was quite extraordinary. And it's interesting that the Bible doesn't say anything more about that. The statement was made, this happened. But I want you to see that this happened. Okay, that when God says, do not touch my anointed, he means don't touch his anointed. And family, you're his anointed. They touch you, they die. You might get hurt, but they die. <laughs> Do you understand? That's why Jesus says, pray for your enemies. You know, he did what he said. Because he could have on the cross said, you know what, Father, kill them all. Punch of no good, useless. (laughs) Okay? I mean, he did what he said. On the cross, crucifixion and all, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Which also tells me something. Father was about to send down wrath. Father was about to level the planet. I don't know. I'm just saying. It's interesting how Father turns up sometimes. You know, armies that are attacking Israel. In one night, one angel goes and just absolutely kills off the whole lot of them. That would have been something to see, wouldn't it? Amen. My daughter was relating to me something. And it was a scene that shouldn't have had 
you know, fighting in it. It was to do with the angels that went to Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and I want to share this with you very quickly. I hope it helps. When they went in, you know, some, some accounts show the angels fighting their way out. They didn't fight their way out. The people that were there didn't have weapons. Uh, they were very naughty. Okay? <laughs> they wanted to do very bad things. But because they didn't have weapons, all they did was just blind them all. And that's it. Just blind them and walk right through them. They couldn't see. They couldn't do anything. But when an army... With, with generals and soldiers and lots of weapons are at your door. That's not the time to blind people. That's the time an angel will go with a sword and say, I'll take care of this. Give me, give me a night, I'll be back. Amen. And so, you know, God deals with things according to what's coming at you. Now, I love, again, what Elisha did. There was a whole army, chariots that were on fire waiting to do his bidding. Now he did, the, you know, he did something interesting. He blinded everybody and went down and just led them all into the, the, <laughs> into the king. You know, and, and the king wanted to kill him and said, can I kill him now? And he said, no, don't kill him. Better to send this one back. They, you know, and, and they had peace. Because the soldiers went back and said, let's not mess with this group. They can blind everybody. How do you fight a battle when you can't see? Forget about it. Amen. So... Anyway, getting back to this, understand that God is always there for you. And you have more power than you can imagine. And that's the problem. We can't imagine. We need to get there. Amen? We need to sanctify imagination and push it. And get to places where God can actually start to do some interesting things. If I could say that. Alright. Now, let's go to Matthew 2 and verse 21. So it says, Then he arose... And took the young child and his mother, again this is following the death of Herod, and came into the land of Israel. Now Hendrickson explains that Joseph probably intended to settle in Bethlehem, where before his flight to Egypt, he must have found many friends and relatives, and an opportunity to work. Probably too, he and Mary decided on this because of their child. Was not nearby Jerusalem, the holy city, the center of Jewish religious life, and did not the temple stand there? But something happens, however, that changes Joseph's plan. Now, do you all understand Israel? Okay, there's a northern and a southern region. Okay, It says in verse 22, But when he had heard Archelaus was reigning over Judea, okay, that's south of Israel. Okay, Now, Judea is where um, Jerusalem, all that area is. Okay, the temple and everything is. All right. Um, so, see how we have sometimes have our own plan? Okay, so Joseph was probably thinking, I'll go to that area, because, I mean, that was an area where the temple is, this is the child that, you know, people came and prophesied over, and if he's meant to be the Messiah, then he should be close to a temple, especially the main temple, hello. Okay, because it was a bit of a journey for them to travel backwards and forwards from the northern part to the southern part of Israel, and then back again. It's a bit of a journey, all right? And... Um, so it was like, well, you know, that would be a good location to settle. However, our plans and God's plans are not the same thing. So remember, he was told to go to Israel. He, didn't, he wasn't told which part. So he gets to one part and then he finds out that we shouldn't stay here. Because this guy, as bad as Herod was, this guy, Herod was like Peter Pan compared to this guy. Archelaus is a piece of work. 
So let me read this verse 22 again. And when he heard that Archelaus was running over Judea, just south of Israel, instead of his father Herod, that's Herod the Great, he was the one again that killed all the kids, he was afraid to go there. Specifically anywhere in Israel that was to the south where the border between Israel and Judah was, okay? Because that's where Archelaus was reigning. Now at the time, Archelaus was known to have murdered over 3,000 Jews. Among them, many pilgrims visiting Jerusalem to attend the Passover feast. So obviously they heard about that. Because of a rebellion that broke out following the execution of two beloved Jewish teachers by him. So he had gone and killed off two Jewish teachers. They rebelled, so he just killed 3,000 people. Just got rid of everybody that rebelled. Are you all with me? There's more to this guy. Accordingly, John MacArthur writes, History records that Archelaus was so brutal and ineffective that he was deposed by Rome. Rome! You know Rome that goes and kills people and conquers? I mean, even Rome thought this guy was too much. That says a lot, doesn't it? (laughs) Okay? So it says here that he was deposed by Rome after a short reign and replaced with the governor appointed by Rome, and we know this guy, named Pontius Pilate, who was responsible for the beheading of John the Baptist and the examining of Christ on the eve of his crucifixion. Personal note, I just think when we read what actually happened with the beheading of John the Baptist, I think you'll realize that Pontius Pilate was... Uh, really sad about what he did. He made a dumb promise. He did something really stupid. And I think he really regretted that. And we're going to see that. And that's the reason why I think when he saw Jesus as well, um, you know, you carry things with you. Who knows what I'm talking about? You know, it's not like the movies, all right? You do something and it carries. It carries, you know, and I think Pontius Pilate was just very, very upset because he was actually talking to John. We're going to see that he visited with John and John was actually talking to him. And, you know, you can't not get saved with John sitting there. And at one point in time, he says, I almost want to become a Christian, so to speak, or a believer because of your words. Okay, he got that close. So you can understand that John had done a fairly good job of getting him somewhere. And the Bible says, one plants, one waters, God brings increase. I reckon John planted, I reckon Christ came and watered it. Especially when the wife came and said, don't touch this man. Don't mess with this, something is going on here. You know what happened the last time, kind of thing, you know what I'm saying? So um, anyway, let's leave all of that. Let's move forward. So it's understandable why it says again in verse 22, and through to verse 23, But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod the Great, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. This was the northern part of Israel, ruled by Herod Antipas. Additionally, the Full Life Study Bible says that from the two warnings of God, we learn that God watches over those whom he loves. And that he knows best how to frustrate the plans of the wicked and how to deliver his faithful out of the hands of those who would harm them. Now, let let me just stop there for a minute. Notice the two things that God does. Number one, he frustrates the plans of people that are trying to cause you harm. Don't think that they are just getting away with things and continually able to do things without opposition. You have no idea what's going on in the background. All you see is the brunt of what you're getting but you're not seeing what's going on with them and all the seeds and all the harvests that they are reaping for all the bad seeds that they're sowing. 
It's a law. Whatever you sow, you reap. You throw something up, it comes back down. Do you understand? So when, when people do anything to you, always understand that. Always understand it's at a price. And it's not the price of an eye for an eye. It's at the price of whatever you sow, you'll reap 30, 60, 100 fold. So whatever comes back on them for what they do to you will be so much worse than what they did to you. It's a law. It just works that way. The good that you do to people always comes back to you so much more than what you did to them. Do you understand? Okay. Works every which way. All right. And so, verse 23, And he came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now this wasn't a complimentary thing. Okay, they didn't say it to say he's going to be called a Nazarene. Oh, hallelujah! It wasn't that. Let's have a look. Okay, MacArthur explains that Matthew is using Nazarene as a synonym for someone who is despised and detestable, for that was how people from the region were often characterized. Evidence of this is seen in what is recorded in John chapter 1, verses 45 and 46. Where it says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Wow, that's amazing. That's so upper class. We're so glad we're following somebody that comes from such a reputable city. Go, <laughs> oh, Pastor, that's not in the Bible. No. <laughs> you think? No? Look at what Nathanael said to him. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good come out of Nazareth? Philip says, Shut up. And, no, he didn't say that. But he says, Come and see. <laughs> okay. So, it's very interesting, isn't it? When people say, Oh, you're doing well because you were born on the right side of the tracks and you, know, you had a silver spoon in your mouth and blah, blah, blah. Hey, Jesus was born on the wrong side of everything. Came from a, a town that was despised. And he still made it. Amen? Your value isn't in where you're born and what circumstances you were born under. Your value lies in who is in you and whose you are and who you choose to be with that knowledge. Amen? Amen. All right. So, <laughs> now although Matthew chapter 2 concludes the boyhood of Jesus, in Luke chapter 2, Luke continues on. So we're going to continue on now. In verse 40, And the child grew and became. Now notice that even Jesus, the second member of the Godhead, needed to take time to grow physically, and also make the effort to become what he needed to be. All right, And that was strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and as a result, the grace of God was upon him. Can I say this? It's very hard for God's grace to be on you when you're dumb. When you're doing silly things, okay? When you're walking out of love, when you are just not making any effort at all, it's hard. Can I, you know, God's grace is there, and it will cover you, family. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, we need to do our job as well. We need to make an effort. Do you hear what I'm saying? Amen? As we do the best that we can, then God's grace covers the rest. Amen. That's right. But if you're not doing your best, there's nothing to cover. God doesn't bless lazy people. Read the book of Proverbs. It says, go check the ant out, you lazy person. 
thou sluggard, you know, <laughs> okay, all those things. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Now, it, now, what we have to not do is get ahead of God and get so industrious that we kind of think we're leaving God behind and if we, you know, God helps those who help themselves kind of thing. Well, if you're helping yourself, then God can't help you. So, you know, that's all gone. You understand it's led by the Spirit. You understand as God tells you to do something, you do something. Amen? You don't say, God, I don't feel like to this morning. It's cold outside. Yeah, well, now is the time. Amen. Whatever it is. Uh, not that he's asked me to do that at the moment. But anyway, okay. Whatever it is, wherever you are. As God leads, you do. Amen. So back to this now. He, it says again, watch again. It says, the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. William Hendrickson writes, the development of this child was in a word, perfect. Alright. See Hebrews 4.15. I've got it down the bottom there. Alright. And... This along every line that is physical, intellectual, moral, spiritual, for from beginning to end, progress was unimpaired and unimpeded by sin, whether inherited or acquired. He was perfect in every area of life, basically. All right? And sin wasn't getting in the way of him reaching that perfection. Do you understand? A lot of times, you know, with us, one of the things that gets in the way is things that, you know, we don't want to give up or we're having trouble with. And we're saying, oh, please, God, you know, be patient with us and everything else. All right? And God has patience. Don't get me wrong. And he'll be there while you're trying. He will always be there. He'll always help you. The secret to it and uh, the key to it is don't ever stop trying. I don't care how many times you fail. Don't ever let the devil sell you the lie that you will never get over this. That's a lie. How does he know what's going to happen for the rest of your life? How does he know what God encounters you might have? He doesn't know. The only thing he can do is stop you. Wherever he can, however he can. Because you know what? Whether he likes it or not, we are gradually, slowly growing from strength to strength, faith to faith, glory to glory. And he will try everything to stop that. And you need to understand that you are progressing. Just you being here today, you're progressing. Do you know that? You never stay the same. You're always either moving forward or backward. And as you learn, you grow, you move forward. Amen. So don't never let him sell that to you. Alright, let's continue here. Between the child Jesus and his father, there was perfect harmony. Limitless love. This also introduces us to the next paragraph in which the young boy, Jesus, reveals his closeness to his father. Let's go to Luke 2, verse 41. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Now, there were three great feasts. There was Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. All right? Leon Morris says that attendance at all three festivals was difficult with Jews scattered all over the Roman world and beyond. But many made the effort once a year. It was Joseph and Mary's custom to go up at Passover, the feast that commemorates the deliverance of the nation from Egypt. Remember the Passover meal that they, that they had and the angel of death came and the blood was on there? Verse 42. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. Verse 43, when they had finished the days, now according to the law, the feast lasted seven days, with MacArthur explaining that Passover was a one-day feast followed immediately by the week-long feast of unleavened bread. So Passover is when they went up to Jerusalem at that point in time, and then they stayed the week. 
Okay, because there was a feast of unleavened bread that followed immediately after Passover. Okay, so you just hung for a week. And according to this, Mary and Joseph must have remained in Jerusalem for the entire period. As they returned, here we go, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. Now, I've added a little bit of stuff in here from the original text so that it becomes very clear what actually happened. Because, you know, people go, how could you forget your kid? I know some parents want to, but this, they didn't want to, okay? I mean, can you just imagine Mary and Joseph going back to God? Uh, God? He goes, yes. Uh, <laughs> you know the kid you gave us? We lost him. <laughs> you know? Can you give us another one? No. <laughs> right? you, know, you know this is not a good thing. You know, you misplaced God's son. Hello? Okay, so this is not a good day. Anyway, so you, I want you to understand how freaked out they would have been. God had entrusted Jesus into their care. So whatever happened to him was their responsibility. Hello. Okay, let's go on. And these people reverence God in a big way. Amen. So, it says, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. Verse 24. But supposing him to have been in the company. Now, what this is actually saying is this. With others of his own age. Alright, so that's what the actual Greek indicates. That they thought that he was in the company of others with his... Because, again, let's read this and you'll get it, okay? They went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. Now, William Hendrickson, this is, explains, Generally, the caravan was composed of people from the same town or from several small neighboring villages. On the evening of each day of travel, the entire group or company would gather at a previously agreed rendezvous. And when they did, they did not find him. So when they, they said, okay, they would obviously they would have said, all right, we are leaving on this day. And so obviously they thought, okay, Jesus obviously is with his friends, all right? And so they just took off. Everybody was like, all right, let's get going. And everybody had their own little groups. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking maybe the women had a little women's group happening, you know, and the men were chatting about their men things. And they obviously thought, okay, Joseph might have thought Mary had checked on, on Jesus, and Mary might have thought Joseph had checked on Jesus. And, you know, we're all going, we're getting, we're going, okay? So, but they stop, and they probably stop to eat or whatever, okay? They come together, uh, where's the kid? I thought you had him. Sound familiar? And everyone goes, well, I thought you had him. So, when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Alright, verse 46. Now it was that after three days. Now as Robertson so eloquently puts it, one day out, one day back, and one day finding him. Alright, we've got three days there. You get that? Because it would have taken them a day to get back. Alright, because they were one day out by then. Alright, Jerusalem was a small place, so they didn't have very far to look. They found him in the temple. Now this is very important. Sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Now, this is a favorite method of teaching among the Jews. The purpose was not to leave these questions unanswered, but to arouse interest among the students, especially bright ones, to arrive at definite answers. And all who heard him were amazed or astonished at his understanding and answers. Alright? So here he is, sitting in the midst. In, In fact, you know what, let me just read this because... There's a lot in here. Let me comment as I read. Is that okay? All right, because I don't want to miss anything here. Hendrickson writes, What was unusual in the present case was the kind of question this boy Jesus asked and the kind of answers he gave. 
Both questions and answers revealed such insight that all who were listening to him were astonished. So do you understand what's going on? He's not only giving them answers, he's asking them questions. He's throwing questions at them, getting them to start thinking about, ooh, I didn't ever think about that. You know, he, he, he throws something out at them. He says, well, you've heard it said, love your friends or whatever, and hate your enemies. Okay, so basically, he says, look, you've heard that. And the Jews are very good at that. Okay, so you love your brethren, but you hate, you know, your enemies, hate the people that do it wrong. And this is what he would do. He would throw things out like, but what about maybe loving your enemies? And then you can see all the religious people going, well, we, uh, we, uh, I don't know what to do with that. Because all of our, you know, Gamaliel and all the people that we, you know, kind of take stuff off. Because they never come up with an original thought to save their life. They, they were very much into quoting everybody else. They didn't have a thought. Okay. They would not have any point of reference. There would be nowhere to actually get something like that from. Because more than even the Bible and the Old Testament, they quoted their rabbis. So here's Jesus starting to throw things back at them. And asking them questions that they're going to find very difficult answering. Amen? And later on, he's going to start explaining all those things. When he starts preaching, he's going to say, You have heard it been said. But I say to you, this is how you should do it. Okay? I reckon he's throwing those questions at them now. Alright, so if you can just get an idea of what's happening. And so it says here again, Soon all eyes must have been riveted on him. So that in a very real sense, whenever he spoke, he became the center of attention. The boy in the midst of the teachers. Okay, so instead of having teachers and, you know, they're asking the questions, the kids around are answering them, suddenly all the teachers are surrounding this one kid. Because he is making them think. Let's go on. Added to this, I don't know if you have this, and I'm sorry if you don't, so listen carefully. Chuck Swindle says that the Greek word used to describe the response of the religious leaders is intriguing for two reasons. All right? First, Amazed literally means to remove oneself figuratively, to lose one's wits, go out of one's mind, be terrified out of one's wits. We would say they were beside themselves. Did you get that? Okay. Thus, amazed doesn't capture the utter astonishment and excitement that seized Israel's most gifted teachers. Are you getting this? They had discovered a prodigy. The Greek term indicates that Jesus is able to put things together and come up with insights that should have been far beyond his grasp at age 12. Okay, so they're just looking at him and going, how can he do this? How can he come up with this? We haven't heard anything like this before. So if they ever heard, they would say, oh, he's quoting someone, so, oh, he's quoting that person. What happens when somebody is talking to you about science that you can't find in any textbook? It makes sense, but you can't find it anywhere. It's like somebody puts stuff together that you think, Whoa, that's incredible. We knew those things, but we never quite put it together like this. Are you all with me? Alright, so (laughs) he could go to the heart of an issue like no one they had seen. A second reason, now listen to this, for the choice of the terms that they use is remarkable. The Greek translation of the Old Testament used the same word, you know how they said amaze, right? To describe the reaction of people, listen, who had seen a manifestation 
of God. Of all the words he could have chosen, Luke chose the most theologically loaded term available. And his readers undoubtedly would have noticed. Remember, he was God in the flesh. And so, he used this term, not just to explain how incredible what Jesus was saying was, but it was also the term that was used when people saw a manifestation of God. You know, when they're freaking out. Interesting, huh? Alright, one last fascinating insight into this event is found in a letter from Gamaliel to the Sanhedrin. Now, do you have this? You don't? Oh, good. Where he writes, His parents told me of an old man who lived on the road to Bethany, who had once been a priest, a man of great learning and well-skilled in the laws and prophets, and that Jesus was often there with him, reading the law and prophets together. His name was Massilian. I asked him to give me an outline of the character of Jesus. He said that he was a young man of the finest thought and feeling he ever saw in his life. Now, this isn't saying that this guy taught Jesus anything. All right, the whole point of his credentials was to say that this was a very learned, very insightful, very wise man. And Jesus is baffling him. Okay? Alright, that's what I want you to get from this. Alright. That he was most apt in his answers and solutions of difficult problems of any man of his age he had ever seen. That his answers seemed to give more universal satisfaction, so much so that the oldest philosopher would not dispute him, or in any manner join issue with him, or ask the second time. Interesting, huh? I asked Mazalian, who taught him to read and interpret the law and the prophets? He said that his mother said that he had always known how to read the law, that his mind seemed to master it from the beginning. He continued, He turns nature into a great law book of illustrations, showing that every bush is a flame, every rock a fountain of water. Do you understand the references? Okay, remember Moses, and he goes and says, I want to go and see why this tree is on fire, and it doesn't burn. And remember again, the nation needed water, and God brought water out of a rock. So he says, showing that every bush is a flame, every rock a fountain of water, every star a pillar of fire, every cloud the one that leads to God. He makes all nature preach the doctrine of trust in the divine fatherhood of God. He speaks of the lilies as pledges of God's care, and points to the fowls as evidence of his watchfulness over human affairs. Who can measure the distance between God and the flower of the field? What connection is there between man and the lily? You know, when I started reading this, I thought, isn't that interesting? How, how Jesus would sort of look around and say, consider the lilies of the field, how they, to- how they grow. They don't toil, they don't do this. You know, and he's sort of saying, your life and that little flower. And he would make equations like nobody would ever think of. Are you all with me? And he just is this amazing way of just getting people to think about things. And I'm, I'm over time. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we'll have a shorter period next. All right. I can't stop you. I'm in the middle of something. All right. So <laughs>
So he says here again, what connection is there between, between man and the lily? By such illustrations, he creates a solicitude in man that seems to awe him into reverence, and he becomes attracted towards heavenly thought, and feels that he is in the presence of one that is superior. In this talk, he brings one to feel he is very near the presence of God. I thought that was nice. Alright, as I said to you before, there are some things that I was going to share with you that were biblical and some things that were not. And I said to you before, I'm going to remind you right now, when things that are non-biblical are given to you like this, please do take it with a grain of salt. This is not biblical. This is not the Word of God. If you have any issues with any of it, and you have any questions about it, that's fine. It's not a problem to me, and don't feel like you know, you're upsetting me, because... I was hesitant to put some of these things in. It just blessed me just to get some kind of insight without making it doctrine. I hope you do the same with it. Just gain some insight and leave it at that. Okay, all right, let's take a break and we'll continue this in the next session.